coming up. What an excellent day for a really big stick. Well, howdy folks, and welcome to Minute 29 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Ryan Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. So, our minute begins with Chris waking up even though she thought she had just gone to bed. And it ends with Chris grabbing a stick. A stick. What is that stick for? Um, Now, the first part of this minute is pretty dark. I mean, literally dark, not figuratively dark. Uh, I mean, we can't see because the lights are still off. Uh, If you'll remember from the previous minute, Chris has just been awoken by the phone. Uh, If that extremely hard to see red clock on the mantle is right, then it's a little after 630 in the morning. Although with Captain Howdy already so firmly entrenched in this house by now, who knows what time it is? Uh, He seems to like messing with clocks, as we know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In any case, Chris struggles to get up, and I gotta say, as an older man now in his late 30s who has a harder and harder time getting out of bed in the morning, I feel every bit of acting she's doing with my bones. She really does look exhausted here. But that's how you describe yourself now, as an older man? Yes, as an older man in my late 30s, yeah. (laughs) I don't say 39, I say late 30s, because that sounds younger. (laughs) But yeah, no, um... Chris McNeil in this scene is, as my students would say, a mood. I'm pretty sure I'm using that correctly. Gen Z, if you're listening, theexorcistminute at gmail.com, write in and tell us if we're cool. Uh, Please, we need to know. I am under the impression that I'm extremely cool, so here's your chance to make an older person cry. Um, Just don't call me a boomer. I'm not a boomer. I'm a millennial, and that's no cap. (laughs) please write us to say that we're cool if you can write and say that we're not cool which is fine but lester will read that and i will not read it i don't Mm. i don't read them (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh, this is not a call from howard because he's a scumbag. Yeah, great fake out. I mean, yeah. I've been rewatching this minute a couple times today uh, just to get into this. And every time I'm like, okay, here she is on the phone. <laughs> here the phone rings. Oh, it's going to be Howard. But it never is, no matter how many times I watch it. Yeah, yeah. This is a wake-up call for Chris. Again, a, literally, not figuratively. Um, although, man, maybe it's... Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, remember, she's an actor, right? She's working on location here in Washington. She's still shooting that movie from the earlier minutes. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Vietnam with Mr. Chips, uh, that movie, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're doing scene 61. And Chris says to remind Flo about the blue belt. Um, we assume she's talking about an article of costume, not an exceptionally good martial artist. Although you do have to remember about those. Uh, now, in this shot, we also have what I believe is our third photo of Reagan. Or maybe it's maybe it's the first one, but we get to see it uh, um, a little bit closer. Um, yeah, we I saw one. So. I think it's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we saw we saw it back in minute 11 when we first got introduced to Chris and uh, we saw her room. Uh, only now we get to see it up close. And listeners, what is Reagan doing in this photo? She's got her hands clasped together, almost as if she's praying or, or perhaps asking for help or maybe both. Once again, she's looking at us and she's not smiling. Not a lot of smiling photos in this house, I'm noticing. <laughs> um reminds me of those old Victorian photos where no one ever smiled. Kina, do, like, do you know why? They didn't smile in the photos? Um, I think, I believe it was uh, to do with uh, looking upper class, right? Um, so it was it was lower class people. Once de- uh, photography had sort of been democratized and everyone can get it, it was your attempt to sort of have the kind of um, family portrait you would see of upper class people and they would not right. smile. 
I'm not. I'm not smiling. I'm up a crust. I, I have nothing <laughs> exactly. to smile about. Right. I have no joys. Yes. Right. Right. I have land. I don't need joys. Yeah. I have. I have more things to smile about, but I'm still not <laughs> smiling. I can't be bothered. I have people to do that for me. Right. <laughs> there, like, so there's like a lot of pseudo factoids floating around. Uh, some say it was like due to poor dental work at the time. Uh huh. Um, that makes sense. So, yeah. Some say it was because old cameras took a really long time to take the picture. Um, and some t- say that like the first photos, like people were still treating them like paintings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of like in, in what you were saying, it was like, oh, this, this is a painting. So we got to be all serious and austere, right? right? That's what um, I had heard. But the other, the other ones make perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. So probably a combination of all of them, right? I imagine it's all of these things. I imagine they didn't know how to treat the first photos, right? They tried to have it be like a painting, right? Mm-hmm. But also like, it's hard to hold a smile even now when people take photos, right? And they're always like, oh, let me, let me take a bunch. And after a while your face hurts, right? So I can only <laughs> imagine trying to hold a smile for like an old timey camera, right? Or a painting for that matter. There's a um, web comic. I wish I remembered which are, I read a lot of web comics, too many web comics. And I, I can't remember um, all, all the names of them, unfortunately, <laughs> but there's a, uh, there's a great one. That's the world's first color photograph. Oh. And it says smile. It's the world's first color photograph. And then they develop it and they have red eyes ah. and so the photographer goes oh, they're witches and they burn them at the stake <laughs> and then he develops the next set of photos He's like oh no <laughs> <laughs> we made a mistake <laughs> i love that um uh, but in any case i i think these photos of reagan are significant i, I want to try to uh keep track of them right you pointed out when we first saw this photo that it, it sort of shows how much Reagan is always on Chris's mind, right? And that she has her as a center of the world as a, as an excellent mother. But uh, now you're talking about them, you know, cause these, these things change symbols have, don't have fixed meaning. They have right. contextual meaning and, yes. and they shift throughout the course of a work, especially a time-based work like a film or a play or a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now you're talking about, Oh, um, it's not just Chris who's looking at Reagan. It's Captain Howdy or whoever Captain Howdy is. Yeah. Yeah. And also it, we could say that like Chris is not noticing that um, like the, the, uh, the photos, like you say, the photo didn't change. Right. But mm-hmm. what the photo is trying to say to us, like in this scene has kind of changed. Right. Like, right. like in both of the, like in the, in the previous minute, we have the, the photo suspended over fire. And in this minute, she's, she's like begging, she's praying and Chris isn't noticing. Right. Because right. of course, you know, again, like I said, the photo didn't change, but like <laughs> the mood around the photo has changed. Right? Yes. And we've we've blocked a little bit of it with this lamp. And the one above the fire, we have trouble tracking Chris or uh, Reagan's eyes because the door frame kind of just as just we start to look at her eyes, as you say, it's a little blurry, out of focus. Yeah. And then the door sort of blocks us from it, just when we might get an idea of what we're seeing. Right, right. And so Chris hangs up the phone and has some more business here, which I really appreciate. She's sort of like rubbing her face with her hands, and then her hands like jerk out for just a moment, right? Like, what is my life, right? In this like it it. it is this just like sleepiness or like, did she, did she take something before like a sleeping pill or some wine or was she just up really late, right? From the cut, we're assuming this is the next day, right? So the day after Reagan's birthday, you don't mm-hmm. party that hard for like a 14 year old kid's birthday, right? <laughs> right. That's a really good point. Um, I want to talk about how the bed sheets have changed here to the other, this bright yellow. Um, so previously they had been, I went back and looked because we're doing this sort of work, uh, Chris's bed sheets had been um, a, a different shade of yellow, a, a less um, bright shade of yellow, and they had stripes on them instead. 
And then in the previous moment, when we saw Reagan go to her bed, uh, we had seen them before as being blue bedsheets and now they're white bedsheets. And that's just the kind of thing, you know, I I work with a lot of student filmmakers um, Mm -hmm. and I teach occasionally production design, art direction, whenever we don't have a production design or art direction teacher with us, Mm -hmm. um, as I'm not. I'm not a professional in that realm, but I do teach a lot of students that. And there's this inclination of, of students to just always match, always have the exact same thing. Like, oh, people are going to notice continuity, mistakes or errors, et cetera. And this is a movie that's taking place over several weeks. Um, so logically, you know, there, there could be different bedsheets. But but again, that's that's the wrong question about what color the bedsheet should be. The right. question should be about um, should be about the feeling that they have, the emotionality of it. So I just want to point that out that, yeah, they, they are different sheets from 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 scene to scene. Not something an audience notices at all, but they feel the difference in color, um, yeah. in warmth, in, in brightness, and tone, and shape, and all of those things. Um, and we're only noticing when we're picking the movie apart. So I think oftentimes people who are new to filmmaking or, or maybe don't want to be filmmakers but just want to watch movies, when they start to really look into the weeds of how a movie is made, they find these quote-unquote mistakes, mm. continuity errors, all they can think about. Mm. At first, it's something you have to push past because that's not something that audiences care one whit about. <laughs> right, right. Wow. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. I see now I'm, now I'm curious about like, yeah, like, like what, what, what means the deeper yellow or the blue or the white or, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, color theory is very, is very difficult. Uh, so color is so impactful on us. Um, I, I tend to ascribe, uh, I tend to, um, subscribe to the ideas of Bruce Block, who is a film visual theorist. Okay. Um, and he says that, that, you know, we, we overthink color too much because it gives us so many feelings. Mm, uh, so, so like I'm doing right now. Yeah. It's completely <laughs> understandable, completely understandable. Um, you know, yellow must be in caution and red must be in passion or, you know, just think, take it about how we think of red, you know, what does right. red mean? Red means blood. And it was, I go, Oh, and then you go, yeah, sure. Of course. But then I could also say red means love and you go, yes, of course. Yes. Uh, so how could it be both of those things? Well, it does mean both of those things contextually. Right. Right. So, you know, if you could say that red is fire, blood, passion stopping uh love um <laughs> compassion yeah, uh, anger, all of those or, things and then in in other cultures even right, right? like we talk about like it, it meaning luck or happiness yeah, or mm-hmm. something like that right right um so so that so anyways bruce block talks about simplifying color theory um not necessarily thinking about it symbolically but look at, at this basically as being look how warm it is when chris and, and reagan are in the bed together it just looks oh. happier and brighter right that's something simple and and to the point um Bruce Block likes to point out that, uh, you know, we have all these different shades of colors that, that an interior designer or an art director should probably know the, the color of paint, right? The difference between eggshell or taupe or um, chartreuse, whatever chartreuse is, or puce. Um, but he says, no, look, there's only bright red and dark red. We've made up this word called pink. <laughs> but there's, there's, you know, maroon, scarlet, etc. No, it's either bright red or dark red or some, you know, darker than dark, lighter than light. And that's all we're looking at, right? Not to get too crazy into it. Yeah. It just, oh. it just, yeah. Obviously, I think there's some professionals who need to know that, but he's, he's talking about like directors, producers, writers, yeah. uh, critics, like there's, there's, you don't have to go too far into it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like, like maybe, maybe when you're at the at the place picking out the specific <laughs> right. color, you need you need to know the actual name for it. But yes, and I think a costume designer and art director should probably have a, a pretty good idea of it. Yeah, right. But the, for the sake of the design, like you're you're thinking in your head, dark red, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know how how much you need to tell your your designer if you're the director or producer mm-hmm. with the specific um, Pantone color of the year uh, names. You know, right, right. Interesting. So. 
Chris reaches over across the bed, and we see that Reagan is in bed with her. Mm-hmm. Now, this is so tiny, I almost didn't mention it, but the book has this interaction being like really sweet. Like Chris discovers her in the bed and is like, well, hey, what are you doing in here, you little rascal, you little bare face, you little stink bot? No. Um, <laughs> you smelly child. <laughs> <laughs> no, she doesn't say that. But but she's like, hey, what are you what are you doing here? And, you know, Reagan says that her bed is shaking and Chris is like, oh, you nut. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like a pleasant thing to wake up to. It's like, well, hey, like good morning. Um, And I know she's not like, annoyed with reagan in the movie um in this version but like like i i know she's like annoyed with the world i guess mm-hmm. right she like she's just trying to wake up but i don't know it just kind of like stood out like like she's like what are you doing here you know yeah, well in in the book she she wakes up on her own in the movie she's awoken by a phone call Oh, good point. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it, we, it doesn't need to be this soft, sweet moment where the movie entirely stops and, and we have to you know, reiterate again what a great mom she is. Like, we still can understand that. We yeah. watch the if movie anybody hasn't figured know. it out yet, Chris is a really good mom. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's lines from um, Stephen Sondheim's uh, songs uh, from Company. Do you know Company? No, uh, there's a song called being alive, which is a really big show tune. Even if you haven't seen the show, you might've heard of, um, hmm. but, but he sings at the end about what, what it means to be married. Cause he's not married. The whole play is everyone trying to get him to marry someone and settle down with a girl. Um, and one of the things he, he says, like, he's like someone to pull me up short and make me complete and all, all these things. Uh, and right. one of the things he says is, um, someone to ruin my sleep. That's what it is to be married to someone, to share a bed with someone. <laughs> and I think that is so true. <laughs> but my, my boyfriend was in town uh, for the week for Thanksgiving. He lives mm-hmm. out of state. And and yesterday I could not get to sleep. It took me it took me so long to get used to him being back in the bed. It does every single time. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday when he was gone again, I, I, it took me forever to fall asleep without him. Oh, Kenan Mark is awesome. He's, he's oh, so I great. love Mark. He's the yeah. best. He's great. He um, is the best. Yeah. And maybe that's a thing, right? Like, like maybe Blatty writes these scenes a little too sweet, right? He's got Karis helping the homeless man out. He's got Chris and Reagan interacting in this almost like picture perfect Hollywood way. Like, oh, I do love you, that kind of thing. And maybe Friedkin is dialing it back a little bit. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I think that the more you point that out about the adaptation, I think we could start to see what a director does more than just, uh, just little things like composition like what the camera's pointing at where it's pointing at like there's this really hard to place intangible thing that directors do when they're working with the actors that can Mm. heavily influence um what the the, what the received meaning of it is even if they're doing the exact same thing that blatty has written um so yeah I, i think it's fascinating looking at the book and then the script and then seeing how the actors perform them again with Friedkin working with them um, and dialing that back. And his movies tend to be pretty cold. The French Connection, right. that is not, even though it's a movie, you could say it's a buddy cop movie because it's about two cops who are going out and solving this case, right. but they are not close friends. And that's, not, again, not just the script. You could do so much with the direction, even if they're not talking about the game that they watched over the weekend, you could do so much with them to make them just in looks, look across each other, like, this is my guy, this is this is my buddy, this is my partner. Yeah. Completely removed from that. Um, that movie ends very coldly. I don't want to talk about, about the ending of that movie with spoilers, but like that movie ends on a sour, unfulfilled note You know, for an action film. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Friedkin wants to go. Interesting. 
So uh, that that's a nice little kind of like yin and yang, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Freakin and Blatty there, right? Like they kind of they kind of balance each other out there, right? Where it works together. I, that that makes me think of the Book of Mormon, where mm. um, you have the the guys who wrote South Park right in the Book of Mormon, right. yeah. and then you also have the guys who did Avenue Q and. Um, Bobby Lopez, who is this composer who has now won a couple Oscars for the songs from Coco and Frozen. Um, And it's like you put them together in that piece and you do something, the Book of Mormon, that neither of them could do on their own. Hmm. Right. You wouldn't think that these two things should gel together at all. And they do. It's like, oh, it's transcendent. It is as good as anything you'll see in the theater. Um, Because if it was just the South Park boys, they wouldn't get to the, the actually emotional like moving conclusions that the Book of Mormon does. And if you didn't have the South Park guys and it was just Bobby Lopez, it might be a little too schmaltzy. His wife, um, uh, oh shoot, what is Robert Lopez's wife's name? Kristen Anderson Lopez. Um, she says that when when Bobby Lopez wrote the lyrics to uh, Frozen to um, Let It Go, that all the, all the lyrics that he wrote are the ones that sound like a drag queen. Oh, right. <laughs> so this is like the kingdom of isolation, and it looks <laughs> like I'm the queen. She says that's all the Bobby's lines are the oh, wow. <laughs> the drag queen lines. The sort of a little bit, you know, a little bit too small, too a little bit too emotional. But you need both of those things to for them right. to work, right? Oh wow! Yeah. Talking about talking about people working well together, You're working um, well together, yeah. and you get uh, let it go. I guess that's by comparison. Uh, <laughs> that's the utmost in art that I was just coming up with in my <laughs> comparison. You get all these disparate people together, and then you get the song "Let It Go." <laughs> well, we're gathering so many things that that compel us for this minute. I think. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, it's like, ah, talk about people working together. And here we are, you and me, Keenan. we're doing this show. This is awesome. And I think, uh, you know, I think I, I just, oh, this is so gushy. Oh. <laughs> I was trying to work it in organically and now it just sounds pandering. Perfect. Keep yeah. that in. <laughs> that's exactly what we're trying to talk about. Just don't cut that out at all. Okay. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Ah. What I'm trying to say, Keenan, is I like that we're doing the show. I, I do too. It's, it's okay. Thanksgiving time uh, when we're recording this right now, and yeah. you know, I feel thankful for you and for uh, for being on your show. It's oh. really great. You, uh, if, oh, oh, we haven't said show. this yet to everybody. I keep yeah. saying we're oh. going to say this. Lester does all the work for the show. Oh no, <laughs> Lester does literally everything. He has the workflow <laughs> for the for the you know for the notes as they are not quite scripts but notes. He has yeah. the the uh, episode order. He does all the editing. Uh, he has the the recording equipment, the studio. All of that is him. The the Gmail account and the social media is all him. And I get to just show up and <laughs> like a, like uh, like Chris McDeal and like wipe my eyes at ten in the morning. Oh my god, what, what's happening today? Minute sixty one. Oh. Okay, God. All right. The episode order. Are you gonna, are you going to say I'm great for doing the the episode? It's a it's a movies by minute yeah. uh, thing, Keenan. <laughs> but literally, I have to be like, what is what is it? And, and he's like, oh, it's that scene with. Oh yeah, okay, great. Like I, I Lester thinks ahead. I don't. I haven't had to do any of that. Any thinking oh. at all. Well, thank you, thank you. And guys, Keenan Keenan carries it. There there have been times when like I've messaged him and I'd be like, I don't know what to talk about in this minute. Um, or I don't, we got it, we got it. Yeah, yeah. So he he helps me out uh, immensely there. 
Hey, Bobby, what was your favorite episode of the Exorcist Minute? I really like when they just talked about how great each of them was. And it was <laughs> awesome. I, I looked up the Exorcist Minute and I was really glad it was two friends talking about how much they love each other. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> did, did they talk about the movie? No, no, they just talked about uh, how awesome they, they were. They talked about some movies, not that movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they talked about every movie except every that movie. Every other movie. <laughs> Oh, it really sounded like they wanted to talk about The Godfather, but they weren't allowed to, or The Shining, <laughs> and they weren't allowed to. <laughs> We're going to get this Godfather bit in, I tell you. <laughs> right. One way or another. Oh, God. Okay, okay, okay. <sighs> anyway. Um, okay, so, yeah. Reagan explains that her bed was shaking, and... Almost as if on cue or by the hands of an expert cutter, we cut to a shot of the attic door and that familiar crash from before. Um, and a lot has happened between now and when we first heard that crash. So we're like, oh, yeah, that crash. There's something in the attic. And I love the Amazon uh, subtitles here. It just says rattle, rattle in parentheses, like all caps, like not faint rattling or even just rattling. It's just it, like Amazon wants you to think the hamburger is up there, right? <laughs> so, rattle, rattle. Yeah, rattle, rattle. Um, is Captain Howdy a Pokemon? <laughs> is that the thing? Like, is Father Marin's story that he didn't catch them all? Okay. You know, I did, I did, I believe on this show, I, I mm. again, I don't remember because Lester does mm. all this. <laughs> <laughs> I believe on the show, we, I talked about how I was, I had this revelation a couple years ago that we, we all could name more Pokemons than senators. Did I talk about yeah. this in the show? I, I think we mentioned it. Yeah. Um, I saw a counter argument to that, oh. <laughs> which is that if senators, you know, had just uh, look in the camera and say their own name to you. <laughs> Like Chris Murphy, Connecticut Democrat, Chris Murphy, Connecticut Democrat, then you might know the senator's name. <laughs> Keenan, are you ushering in a new uh, genre of um, political commercials? <laughs> right. It's just name recognition. Right. I mean, you, you know, yeah, you know, name recognition goes so far in politics, they say, when you're in the in the booth. So if you if you read Psyduck. You know, you'd be like, I know Psyduck. He's been around for a while. Let me vote for Psyduck. Yep. That's the only, that's the only name I know on this list, right? <laughs> right. For state comptroller, whatever the hell that is, mm -hmm. <laughs> Psyduck can do it. I don't know if I particularly agree with Meowth's policies, but <laughs> it's just a catchy name. <laughs> right. If it was like Meowth from the fascist anti-American party, you'd still be like, right. I like that name, Meowth. Meowth, right? <laughs> He's so cute with his little whiskers. Fascism. That's right. Oh, my God. Meowth. That would be Meowth's party. No, anyway. Of course, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but no, Chris goes out into the hall. And I love this shot where she's in shadow and then she sort of walks into the light. And you see on her face this look of, I don't know, it, it's like, all right, enough's enough. Time to get to the bottom of this, right? Mm -hmm. She's got her her eyes on that attic door as she's moving, and we see that she reaches for a stick, right? Mm -hmm. And that is where our minute ends. What's she going to use that stick for? We'll have to wait and see. Oh, I did want to talk about expressionistic lighting. Oh, could. okay. So you really like this lighting here. I like this lighting. This in this sequence looks more like a horror film than we've seen before, right? These scenes where she's going up into the attic are the ones that look most like a horror film so far. Yeah, If yeah. you thought about like... 
if you asked your AI to, to draw you a scene from a horror film, what would it have? It'd have some angles that we wouldn't necessarily be seeing from any particular person's point of view, right? right. And we would have high contrast lighting and the lighting would make strange shapes on the walls. We'd have areas that fall into complete darkness. So we have really, mm. really high contrast ratios in the lighting. Um, and we have lighting sources that are not glamorous. Um, here we have a light from below Chris. Right. That we would call a low key light. So the key light is the light that is, um, there's different ways of, um, of defining it depending on what mm. school you're going to or which photography teacher you have. But, um, the key light is usually, don't write into me cinematographers. I'm trying to simplify. The key light <laughs> is usually the brightest light on a subject, so a person's face. Mm, mm. And so if the key light is below them like this, sort of like when you're putting a, um, a flashlight under your face to do right. a ghost story. Right. This, this is, is, yeah, the typical ghost story right. like Ooh. lighting. <laughs> right. This is a low key light. And mm. that's what that's what typically we see in horror films. Mm. Um, if we had uh, the opposite, say we had a light on top of them, say like in an interrogation room scene, mm. that would be a high key light. Mm. So high key lighting, low key lighting. Um, mm. And so a lot of what we think of as being horror film lighting, which is so key to a horror film, really comes to us through German expressionism, which is the mm. major film movement and major art movement in Germany of the 19 um, late 1910s and the 1920s and early 1930s. So basically the period between World War One and the rise of Hitlerism. Nazism. Um, it's called German Expressionism. And the base, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to presume. Do you know German Expressionism from theater? I mean, I, I, I keep hearing it mentioned. Um, it, like, I, it's like I, the first thing that I think of is like the Adams family uh -huh, yeah. or, you know, something like that, like very kind of like gothic, like, like pointy, right. you know, spires and and like like very uh, uh washed out grays and and uh you know uh, uh things like that like very very kind of like um uh like intimidating like mm -hmm. tall pointy shapes things like that yeah actually yeah great tall pointy shapes yeah so the, the very basically and we spend a lot of time on this in film history classes so i'll try to do it even faster than, mm -hmm. <laughs> than we do it there but basically um the idea is that germany was a was the strongest country in the world going up to world war one and then they lost world war one terribly right tons of deaths um the destruction of their their government the destruction of their um of their economy. money yeah their yeah. economy um and then the destruction of their prestige right they were to blame for world war one after right. after the treaty of versailles and they, yeah, were, they literally had to sign like mm -hmm. responsibility for it yeah like, exactly and pay for it forever and so that was a huge break in the german psyche not just uh the, the not just the politics of it and losing the war. It was like proof that, hey, all these lies we've been telling ourselves about how we're the center of the of the world and in terms of politics and technology and economy and culture are not true. And so you start seeing in German art, uh, which is in architecture, painting, theater, dance, and then in film, um, these sharp pointy shapes appearing. Um, and the basic, uh, the basic metaphor of them is a shard as if the world as we know it had been broken apart into a million oh. pieces. And the world that we had to build afterwards was one of, of shards, broken glass, um, uh, right. Reconfigured ideas. So in, yeah, in film, we have this idea of German expressionism and there's a movie called the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. the first German expressionist film, but is, um, the earliest one that we tend to go back and look at uh, that people will still watch for fun. And we have houses that are completely jagged and they, they look like, um, 
Escher before Escher, basically. Uh, and, and houses don't stand up straight. They're all crooked and, and bajankety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they knew that shadow was going to be something that they wanted to do. And that's something that they had um, been playing with in theater, in uh, German expressionism in theater. But in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and early German expressionist films, they didn't quite have the, um, the electrical light capacity. So they just painted shadows in jagged oh, shapes wow. onto the set. Yeah. And it's a really interesting looking film. If you, if you want to take a look at that Caligari. Okay. Yeah. And, and everybody else. Yeah. Out there, check out yeah, uh, really Cabinet wonderful. of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Great, great movie. Um, and then that leads to German expressionism where we start, when we do have lighting, we start playing up um, cinematography uh, to give us these, the inner lives of characters essentially. Mm. Um, and so we have like Nosferatu, which is that bootleg version of Dracula. Right. Um, and Metropolis, which is a sci-fi version of that. And all some of the best movies ever made are from Germany in the 1920s as they're trying mm. to cope with like, um, hey, why are we going to draw things in straight lines anymore? That doesn't make sense because nothing makes sense. Mm. Uh, the world is a nightmare. <laughs> um, a nightmare before Christmas. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, John Mulaney has a bit about flying Delta Airlines and, and he redoes their, um, their jingle. And he says, life's a fucking nightmare. Delta <laughs> Airlines. <laughs> so, so yeah, life's a German expressionist plane, like all pointy and, <laughs> and crooked. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, this is this is at a time period in Germany where um, the economy is in shambles, and but but at the same time they're doing such forward thinking things in art and science. Um, this is where Germany is winning more Nobel prizes than anybody else in the world still. Oh. And they have this great flourishing in art. There's this great flourishing in um, not quite racial equality as we would say, but there was certainly much more diversity. Like you could be a black person in Berlin in certain circles, you know, in the arts and, and that would be okay. And some interracial marriage um, was allowed and there were queer people and the first, um, uh, gender confirmation surgeries were happening in Germany in the 1920s. Um, oh. Right. And all of that uh, went away with Nazism. Yep. Oh, boy. Yeah. And we're back to that. <laughs> There's always that right around the corner. But anyway, so so German expressionism bleeds into American horror films through the early uh, Universal Monster movies that we've talked about, like Dracula, Frankenstein, etc. Mm-hmm. And then that gets parlayed into the gangster film, and then that gets parlayed into oh. the film noir. And then and then we start getting mature horror-looking films that, that look not all the same, but there's conventions that we associate with what a horror film should look like, and they are essentially German expressionistic uh, conventions. Interesting. I like what you were saying about like the key light before the thing that comes to mind immediately. We were talking about like the Adams family mm-hmm. right? and we were talking about Dracula and everything like that to where it's like used almost to the point of like absurdity. Like Morticia right. Adams has that like, Oh my like, God. It's so like great. almost like piece of tape across her eyes. Like that, <laughs> right. that really, really strong thing of light. Right. Yeah. In the um, second Adams family movie with Angelica Houston, uh, they play with it. So, so they're having so much fun with it and like, she'll move within a shot and she'll find a key light each time. Like they have two different, different key lights for her set up. And, uh, and in impossible places where she's lying down. <laughs> yeah. And is that like a nudge at like Dracula? Like did Bela Lugosi, like he had, he had like the key light, like really bright on his really eyes. Really bright, he? really high contrast. Sure. Yeah. Um, I would say Dracula for sure. I mean, that kind of thing is also happening in, in that first Frankenstein movie. Um, and the mummy where Karloff is, um, his mummy is a little bit like Dracula in that we have these big close ups and, and they're sort of, um, kind there's some sort of like mind, uh, 
uh, I don't know what you call it in the mummy, but like Dracula kind of mind controls you, right? Right, it's mesmerization. Um, yeah, it's mesmerization. There's something similar in the way that the the mummy is shot, where we have those long, lingering close-ups of Karloff as the mummy. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, uh, this is a little bit more of a tangent, but uh, I argue in my queer cinema class because we look at The Bride of Frankenstein, which is a very, very different movie than uh, than Frankenstein is, even though it's the same people making it, the same director and everything. Um but that's a comedy, and it's really playing up a lot of the humor. Um, it's using a lot of expressionism, uh, horror conventions for camp purposes. It's it's directed by a gay man, and the lead actors, the guy who plays um, Henry Frankenstein is gay, and the guy who plays um, uh, Dr. Pretorius, the new creation, he's gay, you know, and they're sort of camping it all up, and, and they do things that I think are incredibly influential to uh, later generations like uh, Dr. Pretorius has a um, a picnic on top of a gravestone as he's sort of waiting for things. Oh, he he okay. eats his lunch on top of a, a tomb and a mausoleum that I mm. think are, um, you know, it's, it's not completely new because Edgar Allan Poe is a lot of that, but this is where it's like directly turning it into comedy as opposed to that macabre sort of, um, uh, not that that Poe was like laugh out loud funny, right? He's sort of ironic, right? Um, and so I think that this is sort of a resurgence of that Poe macabre humor. And then you could see it directly, I think, in the works of Douglas Adam and Edward Gorey and, um, and then later on Tim Burton. And, and it's, it's, yeah. it's like I argue in that class that, um, essentially the Bride of Frankenstein's sense of humor, that gay humor, uh, wins out, right? And now that's the coolest type of humor is this, Spencer's gifts, uh, sort of in my, in our generation, right? Um, like goth, um, goth as rebellion, um, that, that essentially gay humor wins out, not as like a, an under, like a subculture, but as culture. Right, right. Uh, I can't believe it took us that long to mention Tim Burton. Like we're talking about German expressionism and, you know, it might be it's like, yeah, Tim Burton, like Tim Burton. Yes, right? like, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, Tim Burton and um, and his his whole deal, <laughs> right, where he's taking that. Uh, yeah, he like it's cool to be to be the goth who's sitting on your own, right? Like Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice or Winona Ryder and anything. Yeah, <laughs> anything Tim Burton with Winona Ryder. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so Tim Burton and the Adams Family. That's yeah. <laughs> All right. I think th this was a really good minute. Uh, Keenan, did we uh, did we did we get everything we wanted to say? I think we got it, Lester. All right. And yes, folks, we now have a listener group for the show on Facebook. It's called Compelling Conversations, um, an Exorcist Minute listener group. It's a private group, but uh, just request to join and we'll let you in and then you can be in here with us. And uh, you can talk about the movie. You can interact with us and fellow fans. You can post questions, polls, memes, Captain Howdy cereal box art, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever you want, of course. Uh, and of course, as always, if you'd like to leave us a message, uh, our email is theexorcistminute at gmail.com, all one word, and uh, we'll be sure to read it. Lastly, if you like the show and you want to help us out, the best thing you can do for a new podcast that's just starting out is to leave us a little five-star review, and that'll help other people find us, and we can keep uh, growing this cool community. All right. So, Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Folks, until next time. The power, the power of, of Tim Burton, Burton compels you. you.